morning, everybody. Good to see everybody. That song right there uh, really prepares us, I think, for what we're going to be stepping into this morning. Uh, we have been looking <laughs> at the Beatitudes this summer. Uh, the Beatitudes um, form the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5 to 7, which I think you can also easily say is the greatest sermon ever preached. It's a sermon by Jesus. It's a sermon that all of us as Christ followers uh, should know, should read regularly, maybe even memorize it. Um, the word beatitude, though, is not in the sermon. Uh, that word is a Latin word, which means to be overflowing with joy or to be ecstatically happy. And each beatitude begins with the word blessed. And in the original language, that's what the word blessed means. It means to be full of joy. It means to be happy, beyond happy. Um, in fact, we even, really getting at it, it, it means to be so fortunate, or how we would say, you're, you're so lucky. Um, listen to what Jesus is telling us. Who are the people that are so lucky, ecstatically happy? The poor in spirit. Those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, those who are about making peace. Uh, these are, and this ought to just shock us. I mean, this is stunning. Do you feel the shock of this? Because this goes against everything that our, our world screams at us, our, our world shouts at us, true happiness is found in being rich, on making it to the top, on making a life for yourself, a name for yourself, getting ahead, getting what you want, being outwardly beautiful, having an image that is impressive to others. And, and the Beatitudes confront these falsities and declares that the people that we think in life who should be miserable aren't. <laughs> They're the happy ones. I want to feel the shock of this. But here's where we need to be careful. Jesus is not correcting our sociology. He isn't through the Beatitudes saying, you know, you guys got it all wrong. It's, it's really the poor who are happy and the rich who are miserable. No, he's not doing sociology 101. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven and those who belong to the kingdom and are participating in the kingdom. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. It's hard for me to ask you to stand for one verse, so I'm going to still ask you to stand, and we'll read all of it. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May be seated. If you notice, the first and last uh, beatitude ends with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which means all of these beatitudes describe the characteristics of those who belong to the kingdom. And we've also learned that each beatitude is not describing a different group of people, but as John Stott um, has rightly observed, each of these beatitudes are describing what every Christ follower is to be. It's a profile of those who belong to Christ and his kingdom, who are participating in that kingdom. And listen to this who have experienced the kingdom. Experienced it. Have you experienced it? And I say experience because the kingdom of heaven is not just something we know. It's something that actually breaks into our life and it breaks out of our life in a profound way. And I know when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, like it, 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 it is a bit confusing because it is an abstract thing in our minds because heaven itself is, is abstract. But the kingdom of heaven is simply the realm of God. It is the rule of God that breaks into our world. And maybe a more concrete, concrete way of thinking about the kingdom of heaven is going back to the very beginning of the story when God created the world. And I wish that we could see a before and after. Because Genesis actually wants us to see a, a before and after. The world before creation and the world after creation. Genesis tells us that before creation, the world was tohu ve bohu this churning mass of nothingness, darkness, chaos, in, in every kind of way that we can imagine that to be. That, that, that's the before. And the after is a universe that's perfectly ordered, where there's complete harmony, where the world is stunningly beautiful and flourishing in every way. The world was a garden, the world was Eden. What brought this about? The kingdom of heaven. God's realm broke in. God's rule broke out. And we quickly learned that the world fell back into chaos and right now, even though we still have glimpses of the order and the beauty, and the glory of Genesis 1 and 2, um, our world is seriously broken. And not just our world, but we're seriously broken. Think about this. Jesus came to the world announcing the kingdom of heaven is here. In other words, that something now is being unleashed that's on par with creation, recreation, new creation. I mean, think about how God took some dirt. In, in Hebrew, it's called the Adamah. He took the Adamah. And he put his hands in it and he formed it and he shaped it. And, and out of that Adamah, he, he then breathed his, his, his presence, his, his life, his, his realm went into that. 
and it became an atom, a human being that reflected God perfectly. And that's what God is unleashing upon us. Uh, God isn't just saving us. He isn't just delivering us. He's remaking us. He's restoring us. A new humanity is being recreated. And that is why this isn't just something to be known. This is something we experience. Have you experienced the kingdom of heaven? That's why the only way you can talk about it is by being born again. And how does this happen? Pretty simply, when we just simply repent of being our own Lord and Savior, and we give up being in charge of our lives, and we submit to Christ, who is the king of this kingdom. I'm not just talking about paying lip service to this king, but bowing every fabric of our being, every aspect of our life, our time, our money, our sexuality, to this Christ in God's reign, a rain that actually broke in and created the world will start to recreate us. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the Beatitudes then are a profile of someone who belongs to this kingdom, who participates in this kingdom, who experienced this kingdom. And even more than just a profile, uh, the Beatitudes themselves are a progression showing us the process of how one becomes part of this new humanity. And it begins with being poor in spirit. Because until we come to a place where we understand ourselves to be utterly morally and spiritually bankrupt, nothing in these hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, this kingdom will never break in. And we get to that spot, this produces true mourning, mourning for sin, where we understand the problem isn't out there, but, but we're the problem, uh, we're what's wrong with the world, and, and we're broken to the point of tears where we mourn, which produces humility, meekness, which isn't weakness because it actually takes moral fortitude and character to not blame someone else. And this produces mercy because in this, God's mercy comes to us. God says, I oppose the proud, but I give grace and mercy to the humble. And in this, God heals us from the inside out. And our hearts are made pure by his grace. And what flows out of this is shalom. Peace now rules in our hearts. I mean, imagine a buoy in, in, in stormy waters. That's what we are with Christ's peace ruling in us. And that's the peace that we offer to the world. And the end result of all of this is our beatitude for today. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. <laughs> there is an anti-kingdom. This anti-kingdom actually goes all the way back to the beginning. If you do remember the story, there was a snake in the garden. And then when you read throughout the biblical story, wherever the kingdom of God is, uh, there's always the anti-kingdom always trying to snuff it out, always trying to destroy it, hates it. 
And in the Bible, the, the, the anti-kingdom goes by different names. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of this world. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of darkness. Uh, sometimes we see that it manifests itself in people like Cain. Cain did more than just kill his brother, but he is taking out the one through whom God's promise is going to come. He's, he's, he's snuffing out the kingdom of heaven. Later in the story, it's Esau who tries to kill his brother Israel. Still later, uh, you, you, you have a people group called the Amalekites uh, who are not just slave traders and sex traffickers. I mean, they're the big bully on the block, but they are a people who attempt to wipe out God's people in, in their entirety the moment God rescues them from Egypt, which is why God says in Deuteronomy, remember the Amalekites, which is also why God tells the first king Saul, you need to wipe out the Amalekites because, again, the Amalekites are more than just slave traders and sex traffickers. They are the anti-kingdom that violently hate God's king and God's kingdom. And then you see later in the story, uh, because Saul didn't wipe out the Amalekites, you have the story of Esther, which is a story about a man named Haman who uh, masterminds this whole plan, this plot to wipe out God's people from the face of the earth. Haman is an Amalekite. During World War II, the Jews codenamed for Nazis, Amalekites. In our New Testament, the anti-kingdom is manifested more in a culture. Uh, it's the Greco-Roman culture that, that makes life all about me, that, that reduces life to uh, me making a name for myself, pampering myself, promoting myself, exalting myself, worshiping myself. And, and this self-obsessed culture, with its pursuit of money, sex, and power, was totally opposed to Christ and his kingdom. And you can feel this collision of cultures in the Beatitudes because the description of one who belongs to Christ's kingdom stands in stark contrast to the values of that worldly culture. Which is why every book in our New Testament talks about suffering and persecution. And it doesn't use terms like, if you suffer, if you are persecuted, it's when. When you suffer, when you are persecuted, because the New Testament treats persecution as a fact, an absolute fact. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, it's not if, you will, you will have tribulation. And again, this is deeper than just a clash of cultures or a clash of values. Because Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the power and the principalities of this dark world. And so we have to understand that, that underneath people and underneath politics and, and all the flesh and blood conflicts uh, that, that we see, it all goes back to that snake in a garden. He hates God. He hates God's goodness. He hates God's glory. And the thing that he hates most, or at least the thing that he can actually wage war upon, is the place where God has actually put his hands in the dirt 
and created something where he stamped his image on it. Satan hates the fact that we bear the image of God and will do whatever he can to destroy it. In fact, just think about everything God created in Eden that made Eden Eden, that, that, that made that a good world, why it was a world of harmony and, and, and why there was order and beauty. I mean, it, it, it's in that place where God establishes the sacredness of marriage. It's in that place where God establishes the sacredness of sex within marriage. It's in that place where God establishes the sacredness of gender, of male and female, and of our God-endowed differences. It's in that place where, where, where God establishes the sacredness of work and that sacred call to steward every inch of God's creation for God's glory. It's all under attack. Did God really say that? Did God really order it that way? You know, if he did, don't you think God is just trying to repress us? Same lies throughout history. Because the anti-kingdom is real and it is alive and well. And we right now live in a world at war. A world that is vehemently and violently opposed to Christ and his kingdom. What, queen, what kingdom do you belong to? What kingdom has your heart, your time, your resources, your attention, your loves, your affections? Well, the Beatitudes answer that question. Do the Beatitudes describe you? Do they describe us? And persecution is the last one because this is where it all leads. Being persecuted tells us what kingdom we belong. And if we're not persecuted, we should be asking ourselves some hard questions questions. And Jesus is not just talking about any kind of persecution because there are many reasons why people are persecuted. Uh, people can be persecuted just for being obnoxious. People can be persecuted uh, for their political stances. People can be persecuted for, for being fanatical. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus isn't general about about persecution, he's specific. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then when you look at the next verse, he looks at his disciples. Because up until this time, it's blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And now he's gonna turn to his disciples and he's gonna say to guys that he loves, guys that he's pouring his, his life into, he says, now blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, slander your name because of me, on account of me. And so this is persecution specific to Jesus and our love for Jesus and our becoming like Jesus, our walking the path that Jesus walked. 
That's what it means to be persecuted for righteousness sake. In John's gospel, the night before Jesus dies, uh, he tells his disciples, he says, look guys, the world will hate you. The world will persecute you. And Jesus explains why, for the simple reason that it hated me first. They hate you because they hate me. And why did the world hate Jesus? For righteousness sake. He was the most righteous man to ever walk the face of the earth. And therefore the most persecuted, the most tortured man also. Wow, you're like, I came to church to hear all this today. (laughs) I could have definitely been out at the cottage or on the golf course. I know Christians, many of them today, most of them American. Nah, it's probably just because I know more American Christians. I know so many American Christians who think that Christ came to the world to make us healthy and wealthy and to bring us prosperity and not suffering and persecution. Am I the only person that knows Christians like that? Go to your Bibles to Hebrews 11. Such a great text, sometimes referred to as the Hall of Fame of Faith, Um, all, all the greats that have gone before us. Um, The problem in calling it that, there's only one great, um, there's only one saint, and that's Christ, Um, but all these men and their faith are are worth mentioning. But when you get to the second half of Hebrews 11, starting at verse 32, this is what it says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah about David and Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. And we read that and we say, yes. In the first clause, who by faith, who by faith did all these things. But then there's a clean break. And you start the next verse with, ah, oh, I even meant, forgot women received back their dead and raised to life again. And then now the break There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that it might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. That's how Isaiah was killed, tradition tells us. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destituted, persecuted, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. And they wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Those people, too, by faith, 
by faith, verses 32 to 35, and by faith, the rest of Hebrews 11. It's not because they lacked faith. And, and, and it forces us to ask the question then, why is it that Daniel uh, can, can be saved from a lion's den? Why is it that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can be saved from the flames? And why is it that the prophet Isaiah sawn in two? And that's why this theology that says, because of our faith, we won't suffer, in my mind, that's damnable. It's, it's just damnable. It's so unbiblical. Tell that to our brothers and sisters right now in North Korea who are suffering atrocities. Who the end of Hebrews 11, that, that, that's almost a description of them. Or our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. I mean, we just heard it a few weeks ago. When Hanny was here talking about what's going on with our brothers and sisters in Egypt. And you're going to say they lacked faith? And that Christ came into the world so that that wouldn't happen to us? My daughter Kate and I were actually on the way to church. She was just saying, Dad, it's going to be so great when we get to heaven. And we can talk to all these people. You're gonna, can you say that to the disciples someday? Peter made it all the way to Rome, crucified upside down. Andrew made it all the way to Greece. He was scourged and tied by ropes on an X-shaped cross where he hung two days to expire. James stayed in Jerusalem, beheaded with the sword. John made to Ephesus and Patmos. He's the only one who died of natural causes. Philip made it all the way to Hierapolis. He was crucified. Bartholomew made it to India. He was beaten, flayed, and crucified head down. Thomas made it to Greece. He was burned up in an axe oven. In an oven. Uh, Matthew made it to Ethiopia. He was axed to death. James stayed in Jerusalem. He was thrown down from the temple tower, still not dead, so they clubbed him to death. He was 94 years old. Thaddeus made it to Greece. He was crucified. Simon the Zealot made it to Britannia. He was crucified. Matthew, Matthias, the one who replaced Judas, stayed in Jerusalem. He was stoned and beheaded. Paul made it to Rome where he was beheaded. Tell me these guys didn't become like Jesus. And tell me that they weren't persecuted because of righteousness' sake. They weren't fanatics. They weren't killed because of their political stances. The only thing they did politically was tell the church to pray for the emperor. They were killed because of Jesus, because they became like Jesus. And the world was not worthy of them. I mean, the early church, when you read these stories, when they were being arrested and they were thrown into the arenas, their mindset was literally, put me in, coach. I want to be first in. And I'll tell you what they had that, that, that we could have more of. They understood true glory. They 
understood that true glory is not in how much money you have. It's not fame. It's not likes. Are you kidding me? Likes. A life reduced to likes. I'll stop now. <laughs> true glory is not an athletic success. It's not in, in your image, in how you look. Jesus' last prayer right before he dies, which is recorded in John 17, he begins his prayer by praying for glory. He says, Father, glorify me. And I always read these verses, and, and, and I always thought what he was praying is, Father, okay, I'm going to die now, but after I get through this horrible hour, would you glorify me? Would you give back the glory that I gave up when I came to this world? But that is not what Jesus is praying because he begins this prayer, he says, Father, the hour has come. And that hour refers to his death. And he says, glorify me in this hour. In other, in other words, he's saying, God, Father, glorify me in the cross. Father, please let the world see the full extent of my glory in my hour of suffering, shame, torture, and death. It's stunning. That the God who created the galaxies, the billions upon billions of stars that he created and put in place, he knows every star by name, the psalm says. is saying that his ultimate hour of glory is in the shame and suffering of the cross. Do you know what this means? It means that there's no greater glory than for us to give up our glory to glorify someone else. There's nothing more beautiful than for us to give up our beauty to make someone else beautiful. There's nothing more powerful than when we give up our power to empower someone else. There's nothing even more satisfying than for us to give up our satisfaction to satisfy someone else. And see, the early church understood this. Just read the book of Acts today. They're arrested, they're thrown in prison, they're beaten, their names are slandered, some are killed. Then you keep reading church history. You see the church in its infancy and in its childhood flourished for the simple reason that it was so violently persecuted. This painting from a, from a French uh, painter during the Renaissance depicts, imagine, seriously, going to a stadium like this and this being the halftime show. Those are Christians hung on crosses all the way around, being burned. And here they are, all huddled up, and the animals are gonna come and entertain the spectators. Parts of the church today, especially in, in, in the parts of the world where it's so persecuted, it understands this what true glory is. It understands what, what Paul was saying when our light and momentary afflictions are, are, are achieving for us this, this weight of glory. 
Tertullian, one, one of the great writers called the church father uh, during the second century, says the blood of the martyrs is seed. And what he's telling the Roman world is this, you're not killing us, you're just planting us. Because suffering makes someone a spectacle that, that the world just can't help and gawk. So many pagans would go to those arenas and watch these Christians, not just men, but women and children, boys, girls, not just meeting a torturous death, but singing, smiles on their faces, head lifted to heaven. And they watch these Christians going to their death and they ask, how can they sing? How can they have such joy? The blood of the martyrs makes us seed. And when we understand that, Jesus said, unless the seed goes into the ground and dies, it will bear no fruit. But if that seed goes into the ground and dies, it will bear much fruit. And the fruit Jesus is talking about is the fruit of life, of the abundant life, of the resurrection life. And that seed Jesus is referring to is not just himself, but also those who follow him. You understand that we use language like, I gave my life to Christ? You understand what that means? It means we literally gave our life to him. We gave it up. We're not hanging on to it. Like, trying to make it be all that we think life should be. We put demands on everyone and everything because my life needs to be this. Demands on parents, demands on bosses, demands on spouses, demands on this, that, and everything else only in the end to be miserable. We belong to a different realm, to a different king. We participate in a different kingdom who taught us a whole different way. He gave us a whole different lens by which we look at the world. Even things like suffering, we see so differently. Will Williman is one of my... Um, favorite writers. He is a pastor theologian and he tells of a visit he made as a pastor to a couple in a hospital. He says, right after I arrived, a doc what I'm reading right now is sacred. He says, right after I arrived, a doctor entered saying to the parents, you have a new baby boy. There's some problems. Your child has been born a Down syndrome. And your, Bible, your, your baby has a rather minor and correctable respiratory condition. And he continued by saying, my recommendation is that you just consider letting nature run its course and then in a few days there shouldn't be a problem. The couple seemed confused by what the doctor told them. So the husband said, if the condition can be corrected, we want it corrected. The doctor responded, oh, you must understand that studies show that parents who keep these children have a high incident 
sense of marital distress and separation? Is it fair for you and, and your children to bring this sort of suffering upon them? Willeman writes at that mention of the word suffering, the mother seemed to finally understand. She said, our children have had every advantage in the world. They've never really known suffering. They've never had the opportunity to know it. I don't know if God's hand is in this or not, but I could certainly see why it would make perfect sense to the God of the universe to provide a child like this to be born in our family. And our children will do just fine. And when you think about it, this is such a huge opportunity for our family. The doctor looked at them absolutely perplexed. And then he looked at me and he said, I hope you pump some reason into them. And William then writes, the couple was using reason. It was just a reason foreign to the doctor. And he says, for me, it was a vivid example of the church at its best, teaching a different language from that of the world. Because in Christ, words like suffering, which are utterly negative in a total waste, take on a new meaning. Suffering for us is not bad. It's redemptive. Let's get ready to suffer. Let's get ready to be persecuted. Let's have some lines drawn in the sand about what we believe about God and what his word has to say. And let's stand on them. Young people, I don't know what kind of world you're going to continue to, to, to be raised in, but be encouraged. The church thrives when it's persecuted. And it's through suffering that God is redeeming the world. It's through suffering that God is redeeming us. It, it's through death that God is planting us. We're united with Christ. We're united in his death and we are also united in his resurrection. Does this burn in our guts? Because if it doesn't, we will be hanging on so tightly to this life and we will try so hard to get this life and all the pieces and parts and people of this life to, to give us what we think this life should deliver. In the end, we'll only be miserable. But when we give up our life and, and living life for ourselves and we truly know that there's a greater glory uh, the glory of giving up our glory to glorify someone else, to give up our power to empower other people. That's righteousness. And Jesus says, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God, would you pour your spirit upon us. Right now I pray for our brothers and sisters, family members who are persecuted for righteousness sake. God, I don't even know how to pray because I feel like I should pray more for us than for them. God, may we repent. All the ways that we get sucked into this world 
and needing to make this world our thing. When you said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, God, would you give us the grace and the Holy Spirit to do that with everything that we are for true glory in Jesus' name, amen.